0: Brian, your lunatic friend. Well, I've reached my 70s, and I'm trying to remember what I did in the 80s. By 1987, I'd done three solo projects, Have Yourself Committed, Holy Rollin', and Whistlin' in the Dark. And I'm pretty happy about the fact that I can still remember writing the songs and recording the music. What I'm having a harder time with is remembering particular concerts, because there were a lot of them, and after every project, it would mostly be the same ten songs. Wash, rinse, and repeat a hundred times. Now, don't get me wrong, the audience usually made it different, but in most cases, I don't remember the timeline very well. But the first couple of years, I was mostly playing by myself with a keyboard to tracks. But I can't forget the first big-time event I did. It was Christian Night at SeaWorld. The headliner was Pat Boone's daughter, Debbie, had a hit out called You Light Up My Life. Yeah, I had my name on the poster, but I was in the fine print. No, I would never see Debbie Boone or talk to her, because the artists were spread out over the park on about ten different stages. I was on the other side of the park sharing the stage with Terry Deserio, and I kid you not, it was on the Seal and Otter stage, where they got free fish for performing. The stage was a wet cement slab with a moat of water around the front. Smelled like dead fish in the back and the first person I met was the walrus. And my first question was, you're going to run electricity to a wet stage? And the stage manager says, no, it'll be dry because you're replacing the Seal and our Show. Oh, I beg to differ. Terry Deserio would have a meltdown backstage and she refused to go on. So my set would be twice as long and here's what we would call a come to Jesus moment. I thought to myself, if you're going to have a career, you're going to have to find a sense of humor. First thing I thought is, I ought to not go on, but I would go on and do three performances over the night and realize that you can win an audience by pointing out the absurdities. The little amphitheater would be half full when I came out. Hi, I'm Brian Duncan. It's great to be here on the Seal and Otter Show. I'll be filling in, because they're holding out for bigger fish. Now, don't get me wrong, it was an effort to find a smile for that circumstance, but by three songs in, I had the audience laughing and clapping like seals, taught them how to rubberneck through a song, how to blow a kiss with their flipper hand, and ta- I told them if they came back from my next set, I would throw them some holy mackerel, and there would be twice as many people at the next show, and that's when I told them that if the place was absolutely packed to the brim on my next set that I would do a stage dive into the moat, and by the third show it was packed and the security from the park came because they thought I was going to follow through. There was almost an insurrection but I told the audience that they weren't going to let me do it, and I can never remember enjoying cat calls as much as I did that night. I would discover that I could take the worst circumstances and turn it into something good, but I would never have to work that hard again. By the next summer, Knott's Berry Farm would book me for my first solo concert with a band. Trouble is, I didn't have one, but I knew a guy, and he knew people. And I would start rehearsing Holy Rollin' songs with Daryl Wolfick on drums, and Daryl says, my brother plays tenor sax, and he's not on tour right now. And I say, is he any good? And Daryl says, well, he plays with Earth, Wind, and Fire. And Andrew Wolfick brings some of the EWF guys, and suddenly I have a bucket list band for Knott's Berry Farm. We would play at Fiesta Village, and it was mucho Gusto. Except that I couldn't mention the other musicians' side jobs. That same summer, I would play with an all-black band at Magic Mountain. I know Daryl and Andrew Wolfick were with me. They had put most of the band together, and these guys dressed to the nines. I introduced them as the Mighty Colorful Shoes, and they brought some friends with them that were in a hip-hop group. Three guys that had these incredible dance moves. When I saw what they did backstage, I asked them to come on stage and do that. We opened with Only Wanna Do What's Right, and I've never been upstage in a better way. And it was a good thing, too because I was on a co-bill with a group of new kids that were tearing up the Christian market simply known as DC Talk and it wouldn't be the last time I played with them either they would open for me in Minneapolis years later and it would be the first time I realized that I had lost the youth group to a younger band but that's later because right now I'm telling the story about being on top of Magic Mountain I developed a big enough draw to not need to have a -a rent-a-band Phil Kage was living in Orange County, Southern California and there was a guy playing with him by the name of Tony Cena, and he had an on-and-off girlfriend who was an amazing keyboard player Star Parody was just finishing music courses at Orange Coast College, and they were playing with a couple guys they introduced me to. Doug Matthews played drums and carried a thermos of coffee with him everywhere, and Steve Wilkinson, that they referred to as the Narrow Arrow, was a bass player, would be the tallest guy I ever hired for my band, because I couldn't stand next to him without looking like a munchkin. And this would be the band that would do my first full-length video concert, released on VHS, the popular video technology of the time. We were outdoors on a flatbed truck, and we called it Saturday in the Park, and I'm not sure, but I think you can see the whole thing on YouTube. Now, I happen to be signed to the same booking agency as Phil Cagey. We were both at Street Level Artist Agency, run by a little superwoman by the name of Holly Benuski. She was a friend of Ray Wears, my manager at the time, and they would put together a tour that would cover the United States, LA to Boston, in a motorhome. They would call it the Electric Tour. But when Philly and I got together for the photo shoot and found ourselves standing next to the bass player, we looked like a couple of Snow White's dwarves. Hey, we could be sleepy and grumpy. And that is what Phil and I decided decided to call the electric tour The Short Circuit. And it would turn out that putting me and Phil Kagey on a tour together would be like putting two goofballs in the back of a math class. But I can't remember a better time with another artist on the road. Back then, smoking was still allowed in restaurants, and they had a smoking section. Phil Kagey and I would mock being big time. Every time we walked into a restaurant, we would say we would like to have the rock star section of the restaurant. But I felt like Phil Kagey really was one. We had a five-hour drive in that motorhome one time, and I swear he played every Beatles song That you've ever heard. Knew all the lyrics too. And he would play all the way to the gig and then play the gig. And after six weeks on the electric tour, i.e., the short circuit, I think he short circuited. Seems like that might have been in Philadelphia. Because I know he bought a sweatshirt that said Philly on it. And I've always called him that since. But what I remember is that he finished his show and got a standing ovation. And for five minutes, people clapped and he didn't come out. So I went backstage to find him. And there he was. He had fallen asleep in his suitcase. And that's when I would announce, ladies and gentlemen, Philly has left the building after that tour we remain friends to this day and looking back i can tell you that phil kege was the most inspiring christian i ever knew completely unpretentious never felt like he needed to save the world he just did what he did and was who he was and watching him made me want to be like that and now looking back at the longest short circuit i've ever done i know now how good it was and honestly it wasn't that much different from the seal and Honor show I would keep that band for a while. I would start calling them the Jazz Fanatics. Drummer Doug Matthews was a true bohemian, and he leaned into jazz pretty heavy, and eventually I would want a stronger backbeat. Tony Cena would die of a heart attack a couple years later. Bass player Steve Wilkinson didn't get any taller, but he did grow, producing his own music now, and it is incredible as I heard it a few years ago. We were all in our early 20s, and Star Parodi would go on to play on the Arsenio Hall Show, and she's now doing movie soundtracks for people like Jerry Bruckheimer, still lives in Los Angeles, but told me she's working Working in New York with Lily Tomlin, promoting women's rights. But what we all still have in common is that we all know who Jesus is. Nice of you to keep listening to Jesus and music and me on NutshellSermons.com and keep supporting what you believe in.